Ocean Bites Out Loud is a podcast that brings the latest news in ocean science straight to you. Our goal is to summarize the most recent scientific articles for your listening pleasure, and to talk to up-and-coming ocean scientists who have new and interesting ideas to share with the world. We hope you enjoy and learn a little something along the way. So, hello everyone. Welcome back to our show. And today we have with us another amazing scientist. To start us off, can you please tell us your name and your preferred pronouns? My name is Jacqueline Torkelson and my pronouns are she, her. Awesome, thanks. So Jacqueline, what are you currently researching? So in the simplest of terms, I study the chemistry of sand, uh, which basically means that I play with sand for my current work. It's not as fun as it sounds, um, but it's still very exciting. So instead of building sand castles or something like that, I take sand and I look at the chemistry of it. So I'm trying to figure out the lipids. So when I say lipids, I mean things like sterols. The most common one that most people know is like cholesterol and fatty acids. So like the omega-3 fatty acids that a lot of people take as a vitamin. I look for those kinds of things in sand and you can actually use those to figure out where the different organic matter within the sand originated from. And uh, it can also be used as nutrients for different organisms as well. Wow, that sounds super cool. What's a fun fact that you've learned throughout the time of your research that has just blown your mind? So for me, the biggest thing is the amount of lipids within sand. Like normally when you look at sand, you just think, oh, well, you know, it's probably just made of whatever bedrock it is, but it's kind of crazy what can end up in there. So I study coral reefs mostly, but you can see things that come all the way from the coast. You can see lipids that come from mangroves, like a couple of miles out on coral reefs, which is really interesting. Another thing that's kind of crazy is that a lot of the recycled organic matter comes from zooplankton poop. So zooplankton being those little organisms that um, float up and down, uh, eat a bunch of other little organisms, but they repackage it. And then they actually help it get to the bottom of where I study the ocean, which is really big in the open ocean as well, but it's super important for coral reefs too. Wow. That's kind of amazing. Cause you know, when I think about sand, we're just at the beach and it's just there. It's kind of like crushed up rocks, but there's all these different components to it, right? Yeah. And another interesting thing, too, is a lot of the sand that you see on the beach has been pooped out by not only zooplankton, but parrotfish. So parrotfish got their name because they have big beaks and they go and they actually chomp on coral and then they poop out the coral skeleton as sand. So the sand that you're stepping on and you're making sandcastles with has probably been through a couple digestive systems. Oh, that's crazy to think about. So all the stuff about sand sounds really awesome, but what I'm wondering is how did you get interested in studying sand? Did you just wake up one day and say, oh, the sand on the beach, I need to know more about it, or did something lead you there? So it's a little bit of a convoluted story, but essentially I uh, started as a chemist and I originally studied water on the Navajo Nation in the Southwest. And so me switching to coral reefs and sand was pretty big 180, but I've always been really interested in geology 
And I've been a little interested in biology. To be honest, biology is not where I get my kicks. Um, but what I'm studying now is biogeochemistry, which I like to joke is putting as many science words together in one word to make it sound fancier. And so I wanted to study coral reefs, but it's really hard to study coral reefs, especially when you're located in central New York, like I am, and trying to get those permits to uh, study an endangered species and take those samples, also very hard, especially during a pandemic. So for me, it was a lot easier to just get sand samples and it ended up being really interesting. And it's something that I wasn't originally thinking about, but it's something that I'm really happy to study. That's really cool. So it sounds like you've been able to combine a lot of your passions into what you're currently working on. Yeah, definitely. And I originally got interested in the ocean when I was in sixth grade. So I grew up in uh, Arizona a little bit, Minnesota a little bit, nowhere near the ocean. But in sixth grade, we had a guest speaker come in who studied sea turtles. And so from like sixth grade until like mid high school, I was like, I'm going to save the sea turtles until I realized that I wasn't that big, big into biology. So yeah. I was like, all right, what can I do with chemistry to study the ocean? And that's where these little compounds that you don't normally think about, you realize how big of an impact that they have on everything around us, which I think is really cool. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, something I don't think a lot of people think about, you know, we're just walking on sand and everything, but it really influences a lot of the processes that we see in the ocean, right? Yeah, definitely. And when you think about sand, it's not just the little particles of rock. There's other things in there too. And if you've seen, or if you should Google, definitely the pictures of sand like very very um like under a microscope it can be really cool there's so many other interactions happening there and even the size of the sand can actually uh, impact the chemistry as well there's something that in science we call porosity and so the amount of water that can get in between the sand can actually impact the chemistry as well wow that's wild it's like the gift that keeps on giving <laughs> Exactly. It's one of those things. I feel like sand is like chemistry where people don't necessarily think about it on a daily basis, but it's something that is so impactful to the largest, um, some of the largest ecosystems in the world, especially because there's a worldwide gravel shortage and like right. worldwide sand shortage for fill. And so where we think about sand like often as a resource or just going to the beach, but it means so much more than just what we can use it for. Yeah. So something I'm wondering, maybe you have the answer to this, is that when beaches import sand from someplace else, where is that sand coming from other beaches? Or are they mining it from like offshore? Do you know anything about that? I'm not completely sure. Um, I know that they have... A lot of the times it's not necessarily coming from other beaches. It's coming from deeper areas. Oh. And so there's actually a lot of marine sanctuaries, um, which essentially a lot of the time, the only thing that they limit taking out is sand and gravel because just like deep sea mining that obviously affects everything that lives on the floor of the ocean can be really, really bad. And so a lot of the times they're just going to these shallower areas and just taking out tons and tons of the sand and then putting it onto beaches. Wow. 
Yeah, because I think that's something that's kind of like a hidden side of sand and beaches, all these beaches that we have in our mind that look really nice. Some of them bring in a lot of sand. And I was like, where does this come from? <laughs> yeah, and a lot of the times the sand is also used to build up dunes to try to protect coastlines. Oh. And the thing is, is that if we had just left the coastlines natural, like if we had left the mangroves or other things like that, then we wouldn't really need to build the dunes to protect the coastlines because there's already natural things that do that for us. But mangroves are known to be stinky because that's where a lot of things, you know, decompose as they get stuck in those protruding roots and they're not as pretty. So we bring in a lot of sand from other places instead. Yeah, I guess that's that's the price of having beaches. <laughs> Unfortunately, but there's so many beautiful natural beaches too. What's something that motivates you maybe on a daily basis, maybe throughout your time as a scientist to do science and do research? I, ever since I was little, I was like, I'm going to make a change in the world and <laughs> I'm going to do something to make a difference. And fortunately or unfortunately, as I've gotten older, those goals have gotten slightly smaller, but more realistic. Because when I was younger, I was like, I'm going to save the sea turtles. And then as I got older, <laughs> I was like, that's probably unlikely for me to do. Um, but for me, the main thing that keeps me going is if I can do an experiment or if I can publish a paper, if I can do something that pushes conservation forward or helps another scientist be like, oh, that's a good idea. And maybe I can use that to make another project. Essentially doing something that is making a positive impact on the world, I think is key and is my primary motivator for science. Yeah, that's amazing. And I mean, I think all scientists feel that to some extent, but that you're feeling that right now is awesome. And also that you mentioned collaboration in science too, like pushing other people forward. Like we have to support each other in science for sure. Exactly. And I think that's something that can be so hard for scientists because we get stuck in our little corners and like our little niches of like, this is what I study. But if you open it up and you talk to other people and you can figure out where those collaborations can be, it would make the world of a difference because if we can get policymakers and social scientists and especially indigenous scientists who have that traditional knowledge that they can bring into Western science, if we could get all of these people to work together, the amount of change that we could do for one, just even one thing would be amazing. But yeah. unfortunately, a lot of us just get stuck in our tiny little shells. Yeah, unfortunately, like I think a lot of those barriers are really hard to overcome, but we really need to have everyone at the table in order to have more inclusive science and come up with solutions that are really helpful to everyone, not just one group of people. <laughs> inclusive science, I think, is is so important because, I don't know, like I help teach chemistry classes and if something's named after somebody, it's definitely an old white guy. For and sure. so making yeah. sure that not just the old white guys have the seats at the table because there are so many other perspectives that don't get included. Um, so collaboration is definitely so important. I think we're moving in the right direction, but we still have a long way to go. <laughs> yes, we do. That is for sure. 
You mentioned that you got interested in the ocean when somebody came to your class, but I'm wondering since then, have you been to the ocean and have you had like a really fun experience at the ocean that you want to share that's like, oh my gosh, this is where I'm supposed to be. <laughs> yeah, so um, I was able to spend a couple of months in the Florida Keys, which was super awesome. Um, I did an internship down there at Mount Marine Labs and I was able to collect samples. Um, but for me, I think the biggest experience that comes to mind is when I was in high school, um, my family and I went to Maui and we went snorkeling for the first time. So this was before I was scuba certified. And that was the first time I had seen a coral reef in person. And I saw, you know, we saw sea turtles and we saw all of these fish. And I just remember like tearing up within my mask of just like, oh my God, this is amazing. Yeah. And just like getting back on the boat and like absolutely losing my mind about how cool it was. And my parents being like, yeah, it was cool. Be like, I feel like you're not as excited about this as I am. <laughs> and realizing like, oh, like the ocean's exciting for some people, but like, I think this is what I'm supposed to do. Yeah. Um, but <laughs> it was just one of the coolest things. And I really wish that more people were able to experience that because seeing pictures of coral reefs is one thing, but like, seeing them in person in like their prime is amazing and then also in like the back of my head being like the environmental person of like they're not like that anymore because I went there like 10 years ago um yeah <laughs> so you know that also definitely being sad too yeah it is it is really sad but it's just good to encourage people to go see them before the you know they're completely gone because if things keep heading the way they're heading that's kind of what it's looking like, unfortunately, which is really sad. It is sad, but at the same time, um, there are, especially if you're scuba certified, it ends up being a little bit easier, but there are certain programs um, where you can actually go out and help with conservation efforts. And so it's usually like a one or two day thing where like you do a classroom setting and they teach you how to, um, like apply putty to a coral disease to help prevent the spread of the disease. And then Whoa. you can actually go out with scientists and um, basically help with that. And you can go up and you can actually get closer to coral than you would if you were just snorkeling. And so it's an integrative experience, which I think is really awesome. And so even if you're not necessarily a scientist or this isn't something you wanna pursue as a career, there's something that you can still do to help these areas. Wow, that's awesome. Thanks for telling us about that. Because I think it's really important to get everybody on board in order to like tackle such a big problem that all the problems that come with climate change and just tackling climate change in general. <laughs> Definitely. Yeah. And there's so many little things that people can do. I know, uh, for example, the coral reef safe sunscreen is a great thing that people can do. The biggest thing is when you're going to beach, just if you see trash, just pick it up. You know, you don't need to be the big changer. You don't need to be the person that talks in front of the UN. You know, you can be the person that just picks up trash and will help the environment that way. That's great too. Yeah, exactly. Every little bit helps. What does a normal day look like for you as a graduate student? My days definitely vary. So I am also a teaching assistant for general chemistry. Um, I'm at the State University of New York College of Environmental Science and Forestry, 
which is abbreviated to SUNY ESF because it is the longest college name. And uh, so when I'm teaching, I will go in, I teach labs. I also help with lecture. I love interacting with students. Um, there are other days where I get to spend my time in lab. So usually that means putting on a podcast or listening to music and um, doing what I call extractions. So basically taking that sand, doing a bunch of fun chemistry to it and uh, getting those lipids out. And then I can run them on an instrument called gas chromatography and I can see what's in there, which is pretty cool. Fortunately, a lot of my days are just writing. Uh, I'm in the fifth year of my PhD, which means that I'm trying to graduate soon. There's just a lot of writing. So a lot of it just gets unfortunately spent in front of my computer, but I really get excited when I get to do lab days too. It's nice to break up the monotony a little bit. Yeah, it sounds like you have a good variety of things that you're working on and you can go back and forth. Yeah, that's one thing I really love about doing environmental chemistry because I talk to so many of my other other grad students in the department that are chemists and they do lab work. They do more lab work than I do, but they just do lab work. Whereas I was able to go out and collect these samples. Fortunately, I had to, I was just getting samples shipped to me because I didn't have enough funds to go back. But I get to work with a bunch of different things instead of getting stuck just doing chemistry. I'm a chemist, but it's fun to have chemistry with an environmental application too. Yeah, that's awesome. Where do you get your sand samples from is something that I'm wondering. These samples uh, were collected, um, like I just had some samples shipped up to me, um, thankful to Dr. Grace Klinkus uh, down at Moat Marine Labs. She is a postdoc down there and she collected samples for me for my most recent study from Dry Tortugas, which is west of Key West. So uh, Key West is the westernmost point of the Florida Keys where people are and then the Dry Tortugas Park is uh, just a reserve. And so uh, her team was already going out there to collect coral samples. And so they took uh, some tubes out with them, some centrifuge tubes, and they just filled them up with sand. And then uh, they shipped the sand back to me in a styrofoam box full of dry ice and they overnighted it. In case you were wondering, it's uh, about $80 to ship sand. Uh, so it's a little weird to be like excited, be like, yay, my sand's coming today. <laughs> Uh, but when I collected my samples, um, before that it's, it's really just scuba diving or I did a lot of free diving too, and just going down and shoving some surface sand into a tube <laughs> and, um, taking it back to New York. Why do you need the dry ice to keep the sand cold? Yeah, that's a great question. So it's to keep it frozen. So once I get it back to the lab, I do something called dry freezing it, which is essentially taking all of the water out. So that actually goes, the water goes straight from being ice into being a gas and it gets sucked out of the tube, which is really cool. But the reason that that all needs to happen is because there's still bacteria and there's still a lot of microorganisms living in the sand. And so if you don't freeze it right away, they can keep digesting Things can keep happening to the sand and we really want to get that snapshot of in time. And so freezing it, um, make sure that everything stays the way that it should be. And it keeps all of the chemicals in there stable and keeps anything alive from changing anything. Wow, 
that's really awesome because I would just think, you know, you get a bucket of sand, take it back with you and that's it. But by freezing it, you're getting that snapshot and just making sure that it is as close to the moment as it was collected as possible. Exactly. It's like when you have a stick of butter and you leave it out in the sun, it's going to melt. And so that's kind of the same thing. What's happening is like there's some chemical degradation happening within that butter when you leave it in the sun. Butter is a lipid. It's a fat. And so similar things are going to happen within the sand itself. There's going to be some changes and there's going to be some degradation. And I want to make sure that I see all of the structures as they are in the sand as I collect it. And it sounds like $80 is definitely worth it to make sure your sand doesn't melt or anything like that. <laughs> Most people don't have to worry about their sand melting, but for me, it can be an issue. Is there like an endpoint to when you're running the samples and then you're just writing for the rest of the time? Or what does the next stage of your degree look like? I run all of my samples. I've done the analysis on them, but I haven't done the data analysis. So when I put them through the instrument, I get a graph that's got a bunch of peaks on it. And so I have to figure out what those peaks mean. So that's my next step. And um, after that, it will be writing. I'm also trying to apply for jobs and postdoctoral positions for after I graduate. So Mostly, mostly writing and computer yeah. work for me. That makes sense. What's maybe, if you're comfortable sharing, one example of a job or a postdoc position that you would be interested in um, working for or a company or organization that would maybe match up really well with the skills that you've gotten from your degree? One thing that I'm trying to apply for right now is a postdoctoral position doing some work with One People, One Reef. So One People, One Reef is a nonprofit organization run out of the Federated States of Micronesia. What they do is they um, help Western scientists and the indigenous scientists specifically in Ulithia Atoll within Micronesia. And they make sure that there are co-authors of indigenous scientists, the science, that there are citizen scientists that are trained to take samples. So it is a really great collaboration effort between indigenous knowledge and people with Western scientists. And so right now I'm working on applying to do work outlet out there to look at coral disease. When I was an undergrad, I worked with the Navajo Nation and I really loved working with indigenous communities. There's just so much to learn from them and to just learn from indigenous communities and to give back to indigenous communities. It's so important to not only learn that knowledge and take no that knowledge, but that's what white people have been doing forever, but making sure that we give back knowledge and we take into account what they want to know and what we can do to help them and whatever it is that they're concerned about. But within the government, there are other jobs that you can do within the EPA to work with local communities as well, which I think is fantastic. So something like that is what I would like to do in the future. Yeah, and it sounds like it's right up your alley coming full circle back to inclusive and collaborative science, which is awesome. Super excited about. And I, I agree, like the more that we can include this in the way forward, I think the better it will be for everyone. Definitely, 
definitely making sure that there are so many different voices heard and not just from one group of people from one university or different like certain universities I guess the Ivy Leagues yeah (laughs) makes sense (laughs) yeah throughout your time as a grad student or like even doing science what's one of the obstacles that you've faced and follow up how did you overcome that I think one of the biggest obstacles for research and also for school in general is my brother and I are first generation college students and I'm also the first in my family to go to grad school and I had no idea what I was getting myself into. I'm also the only scientist in the family. (laughs) While like pursuing research is really interesting, the one thing I didn't realize would be so hard, I guess this isn't exactly science related, but is talking about what I do to my family um, because they have no idea what's happening. And it's, I didn't realize that that would be difficult compared to talking to my friends that are like, oh yeah, both my parents have PhDs in science and I can just talk about like, they know what qualifying exams are and they know what it takes (laughs) to do all of these things. Um, So that's something I wasn't necessarily expecting, but more research focused, I say money. Yeah. And I know that that's like such an answer that most people give, but it's been so hard to find money. Like I wanted to go down and collect more samples, but I didn't have the money to get myself to Florida and pay for the flights and, you know, do everything down there. So luckily I had a collaborator that could send the samples to me, but it's kind of sad I couldn't go do it myself. So money has definitely been a big obstacle, but there's a lot of funding opportunities that you can apply for. The downside is it just takes a lot of time to apply for all of them. Which is unfortunate because a lot of these issues are time sensitive and the allocation of resources to a lot of different places don't always match up with what's needed in order to do good science. Exactly. And a lot of the funding opportunities are so specific. You're like, oh, I think this is really good. And then I'll have like one caveat and be like, oh, it doesn't actually apply to me. Um, Yeah. (laughs) But it, it can be, it, it's definitely a good skill to learn and something that I am still learning and probably will continue to learn for the next decade. But I think money has been the biggest obstacle. Yeah, it is definitely an, on, an ongoing issue. <laughs> so yeah. hopefully, I mean, the grants and the funding opportunities are great, but hopefully there's a way, I don't know if we'll ever convince the government or anyone else that it's worth it to invest in all sorts of different kinds of science. Yeah, we can hope. We can, we hope. can hope. And yeah. uh, we can push for it. I think that's that's something that scientists, we can be more vocal about. And going again, going back to that collaboration thing is uh, talking to policymakers. They're healthy, uh, the Healthy Ocean Coalition actually hosts a um, Ocean Advocacy Academy which is for scientists to learn about how to create policy action, which I was able to do last year. It's an amazing program. And so if there's more programs like that or those kinds of programs get bigger, it could really help scientists advocate for more money and advocate for science and climate change. Yeah, it sounds like an amazing uh, organization. And I'll also link to that in the show notes. To wrap us up today, 
What's something that you wish you had known before going into research or if you have advice for people who are thinking about going into grad school or are currently in grad school doing research, what would be something that you would tell them? Just be prepared for the amount of dishes that science requires. I feel like I'm spending a lot of time doing dishes. But in terms of things that I wish I had known, your advisor is so important. So make sure that when you're looking at grad schools, not only do you talk to the advisor, but you talk to past advisees that they've had, current advisees, because while the topic that your advisor studies, it has to be important and it has to be interesting to you, the way that you get along with your advisor is so important. My advisor, Dr. Mark Teese, shout out, at ESF is amazing. We get along really well together. And it's just so important to make sure that you vibe well with your advisor. Because if you're advisor and you have very different personalities, if you have different advising advisee styles, if your advisor has 20 other grad students, there's a chance that they're not going to get those edits back to you very quickly. And so making sure that you think that you'll fit in well to the dynamics of the lab and talking to other people within the lab that have had the same experiences, super important. I didn't necessarily do that, but I got really lucky with my advisor. Yeah, I would, I would agree with you on that statement. And that's really great advice for everyone out there who's thinking about grad school or just continuing on in research. So finally, what's one thing that you're excited about in the future in either life or just in your research? For life, I just got engaged, so I'm very excited Congrats. about that. Thank you. Um, for research, I'm really excited about, so the next paper that I have doing, uh, that's all computer work, is creating a model, basically create an en energy budget for coral and sediment. And I have, to be honest, I've never made an energy budget before. I have <laughs> absolutely no idea but I have a couple of people that are going to help me with it. And it's a skill I've been really excited to learn how to do. Um, I have experience in R, so hopefully that'll be okay. Yeah. But I'm really <laughs> excited to learn how to make an energy budget. I know it's gonna be really stressful, but I'm really excited about it. Yeah, I'm excited for you too. And I'm sure it'll turn out amazing. Thank you, Jacqueline, for being here today. It was awesome talking to you and I wish you the best in your research. Thank you very much. You too. Thanks. Ocean Bites Out Loud is supported by CFUV 101.9 FM at the University of Victoria and the Graduate School of Oceanography at the University of Rhode Island. 